This is Alex Pearson. We didn't have a problem with Roxon Road before Justin Trudeau. This is a problem that followed him. It didn't precede him. And secondly, he's the Prime Minister of Canada. If Canada is a country, then it has borders. And if the Prime Minister is the head of the government, he is responsible for protecting those borders. Prime Minister broke the border. It's his job to fix it. So why won't he? Alex Pearson with you on this February 22nd. Yeah, it is Wednesday. Midweek feels like a Thursday. And I don't know what kind of day it's going to be. Question is, what's the point in having borders if rules aren't enforced? So by now you've heard all about Roxham Road, but Premier Legault in this latest chapter has now formally penned a letter to the Prime Minister demanding again that Trudeau find a solution to a problem he created and end this never-ending flow of illegal border crossings into his province. The numbers are not small. You look back to 2022. More than 39,000 asylum seekers or refugees crossed at this irregular border entry. And once in Quebec, of course, their needs and expenses fall on the province and cities to burden. So Quebec by far has shouldered the heaviest costs, and they've had enough. They don't want any more. They can't handle any more. But they're certainly not alone. Because no one in charge has taken charge, the numbers of crossers just keeps going up, and now migrants are flowing in and being shipped off to other cities, including Toronto, which has taken in thousands of these crossers who then fill up our shelter systems and displace local needs. Niagara Falls has seen a sudden explosion in numbers, and they have no idea how many people are arriving or where they're going to live long term. And Trudeau has done next to nothing to stop what he started Because Roxham Road crossings were not a thing under Stephen Harper, not Jean Chrétien, not Paul Martin. It was this prime minister who rolled out the welcome mat. Remember that tweet in 2017 when he declared to his Twitter followers, quote, to those fleeing persecution, terror and war, Canadians will welcome you regardless of your faith. Diversity is our strength. Welcome to Canada. And at that time, the stunt was aimed at poking a stick at Donald Trump. But of course, it didn't take long for word to spread that anyone and everyone could cross a field from the U.S. and stroll across our border on the grounds of seeking asylum, which is not legal because you can't seek asylum if you're coming from the United States. There's just no such thing. You cannot be a refugee in the United States or or coming from Canada. And yet it happens every single day at this unofficial border entry that's been so normalized that not only do the cops now help carry baggage for those crossing in, but there are processing centers that have been set up. So it delivers this message that, you know, Canada's immigration system is, is to be gamed, no questions asked, which is why U.S. officials are actually buying migrants in the U.S. their tickets to come to Canada. And Trudeau blames the issues on the safe third country agreement between the U.S. and Canada, but... The agreement only became an issue when Trudeau made it one. Because if the rules were followed, no one would be allowed to get asylum in both countries. And they would only be allowed to enter the country at official border crossings. So while no one can blame desperate people for wanting to escape whatever country they've left to get a better life, but the system is being gamed because our prime minister allows it to be gamed. And the only normal, obvious answer would be to seal the border entry. But because that hasn't happened, it's expected that tens of thousands more are going to keep coming in. 
And we are a very generous nation, certainly to those in need and those who seek protection from, you know, persecution. But right now, if you are going through those proper refugee channels, we've got 71,000 refugees stuck waiting. They can't get in because the Trudeau government uh, refuses to stop enforcing the borders. So there's this massive backlog. And there's no end in sight. And there's no concern over costs or covering off the provinces and cities that are stuck with the bill. And that's why Quebec is making so much noise now. But when you look here in Toronto, refugees now take up 28% of Toronto's shelter space. That's 2,500 beds a night that then are not available to help with local needs. And the Trudeau government has booked $50 million in hotel bookings for illegal migrants to stay many of whom are eventually going to be turned away. And the parliamentary budget officer in 2018 totaled the cost of a regular migration at just under $1 billion for three years. That's 14300 per illegal immigrant, but rises to about 33500 depending on how long the appeals last. So we're paying out hundreds of millions of dollars to care for those crossing irregularly, illegally, whatever the term is you want to use, it is not an official border entry. And we can't even offer heating centers for homeless people here. I mean, it's, it's hard to square that. When we have so much need here, why won't the prime minister do what he knows needs to be done? I mean, we have or used to anyway, one of the best immigration and refugee systems in the world. And it's in complete disarray now because the government has not enforced basic rules for six years. I mean, we either have borders or we don't. We either have laws or we don't. We either enforce them or we don't, and we aren't. And so Pierre Balliavra is sinking his teeth into this one because it's just kind of obvious. He's saying, you know, you've got to do something. And so now he's... Uh, Bit of, offered a bit of a challenge to, to Trudeau, you know, see what he can do about closing it. Happily, there is a solution. And the prime minister accidentally demonstrated it during COVID. He closed Roxham Road during the COVID period, but then he decided to reopen it. That was a decision. It wasn't an accident. So we as a country can close that border crossing. If we are a real country, we have borders. And if this is a real prime minister, he is responsible for those borders. That is why conservatives are calling for the prime minister to implement a plan to close the Roxham Road crossing within 30 days from now. So the clock starts ticking. Look, I, I don't think that's going to happen. This will no doubt be turned into a big fight and a wedge issue. Trump style attacks, whatever you want to call it. But this is only one person's fault. It's not Joe Biden's fault. It's not the Americans' fault. It's no one else's fault. We have a country. It is our government's job to protect the borders in our country. And we're not doing it. And who wouldn't want to come to this country? Who wouldn't want the opportunities and the safety of this country? But we do have processes. And if we're getting rid of those processes, then they should just say, right? They should just be honest about it. And if they were closed during the pandemic... Why wouldn't they keep them closed? Why would they go back to reopening them? It doesn't make any sense. 
It's like they had a solution given to them and they decided to reopen it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But what's the long-term plan? What's the long-term plan for small cities like uh, Niagara Falls? Where are these people going to go? How's Toronto going to care for people when they don't have a budget to do so? I mean, there are a lot of things that need to be worked out. You can't just open the doors and then just say, well, have at her. Comes with a responsibility. You don't want people coming in here as refugees and then living in homeless shelters. That's not why people come to this country. But that is the existence right now because there's no plan. Alex Pearson, weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. Been saying for years, including on the floor of the House of Commons, that China is trying to interfere in our democracy, in the processes in our country, including during our elections. They've been warning so long, um, yeah, but they just have done nothing about it. And yet, uh, questions being raised whether or not election interference cost Aaron O'Toole seats in the 2021 election with the Toronto Star writing that the uh, then-Conservative leader had considered raising the issue during the election but was worried about backlash. And so instead what the O'Toole team did was send their concerns of what they were seeing in the first two weeks of the election to a task force that had been set up by the Trudeau government, these tools that Mr. Trudeau keeps talking about. And um, it was met with a shrug, and it was ignored. And, of course, we've learned from the Globe and Mail that CSIS had a whole file already built full of warnings about interference, that as many as 13 ridings were targeted. And this is not to say that it would have changed the outcome of the election, but it certainly could have meant more seats for O'Toole. Maybe he'd still be leader today. We don't know. So far, Trudeau has deflected of what he actually knew. And then it kind of moved to, well, it's only just a small amount of interference. But the answer we should be hearing from this government is that there cannot be any interference at all. Because with the answers we're getting now is, you know, what, what happens in the next election? Because they literally have done nothing. Marcus Kolga is director of Disinfo Watch, also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, knows an awful lot about Russia and China. And we should say it was Marcus Kolga's Disinfo Watch that actually put this on the radar back in 2021 when he did an investigation and found interference in the uh, election. Good to have you, Marcus. Thanks for having me on, Alex. None of this surprises you. Uh, no, I mean, uh, look, as you mentioned, back in 2021, we um, we were sort of patrolling Chinese state media, Russian state media, various other platforms that um, worked to amplify the narratives that they were putting out there. And, and it was during that election that we noticed, uh, it was about two weeks before the election, we noticed that Chinese state media, um, their, their platform, Global Times, um, put out a couple of very aggressive anti-conservative um, articles that uh, suggested that uh, the conservative platform and Aaron O'Toole were somehow anti-China um, because they were taking a tough stand against uh, China's rising you know, authoritarianism and the export of that authoritarianism and, uh, you know, its intimidation of... Uh, of Canadians of, of Chinese heritage and such. Um, and then we were alerted by um, connections within the Chinese speaking community here in Canada that 
those same narratives were seeping into local Canadian Chinese diaspora platforms. And, you know, we exposed it. And, um, you know, I, these sorts of uh, efforts to uh, interfere and manipulate uh, Canadian public opinion, as you say, mm-hmm. are, are quite serious. But um, the scope of this problem that has been exposed over the past few months, starting with Sam Cooper's great reporting about um, interference in the 2019 election, and now this Globe and Mail report. I mean, it is, um, it's quite disturbing, the, the extent of that, these operations. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, the, the, the federal government's lack of response, the fact that um, there has not been a significant response since these uh, activities were exposed is, is deeply concerning because what that does is allows the, the Chinese government and other foreign governments, Russia included, Iran as well, um, to act with impunity. Um, you know, we need to impose consequences when these foreign governments try to uh, undermine the integrity of our democracy. And so far, I'm not seeing any of that. Yeah, and the Globe and Mail's uh, Bob Fife and Stephen Chase have another report out today that the uh, Canadian military found Chinese monitoring buoys in the Arctic. So it's just like every day it's another story. So we've had these warnings uh, that this has been going on. And some of the tactics other than disinformation, like painting O'Toole as a Trump, you know, they, they make students from China who come here to go to school, they make them volunteer for the Liberals um, which is a really valuable thing during elections. They put them into big Chinese populations and, and, and go door to door. But the response from the prime minister has been all over the place. It was first with the Sam Cooper stuff. Well, you know, uh, I wasn't really briefed on it. And then it kind of flipped to, well, it's not a lot of inf- interference. Now they're trying to, you know, suggest that, well, we've been warning for so long about this. We've been, we've been warning for years about this. And the conservatives just haven't really cared. That is nonsense. That's absolute nonsense, yeah. but they're trying to rewrite the script. Well, well, look, I mean, we have been warned. The, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians has been warning for years already, starting back in 2019, saying that uh, Russia, China, and Iran are trying to interfere in our democracy and that that interference represents uh, a very serious threat uh, to the cohesion of our society and the functioning of that democracy. So in that sense, yeah. You know the the prime minister is is correct that we've we've known that this is happening for for quite some time. Um, the fact that we're not taking any concrete steps um, to uh, actually impose costs or consequences on that sort of action is to me um, uh, problematic, and it's something that the government needs to really consider. You know, you mentioned that there were. Uh, that uh, Mr. O'Toole had sent the information about the 2021 interference to the uh, task force that had been set up by the federal government in 2019 to expose these sorts of interference operations. The fact that that task force did not take this um, effort seriously, the fact that Canadians, you know, it it was me (laughs) and DisinfoWatch that made Canadians aware of it. It's really the government's responsibility sure. to do that. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, there, thankfully there's, uh, Parliament is examining uh, the issue of interference. But even but, that you know, has been, like the NDP and the Liberals have voted against actually getting anybody with girth up there on the stand to answer. I mean, the reality is, Marcus, if this government were doing something about it, we would have seen an RCMP uh, investigation by now. We would yeah. see Elections Canada and Elections, uh, the Commissioner, looking into this. We've seen none of that. None of that. The no, first yeah. reaction from the Prime Minister was, well, CISA seems to have a leak. Uh, we better find out who that is. Well, you, no, yeah. go after China, not the whistleblower. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, what, what's required right now is an immediate RCMP investigation, uh, an investigation by the elections commissioner, because it is the integrity of our elections. As you mentioned in your opening, that's at stake. What are Canadians to believe the next time around? Um, so, you know, when, when these sorts of incidents happen, and this is not just one incident, I mean, this is happening, this has happened for a number of elections now, um, we need to react immediately to preserve that, that integrity. And yeah, uh, an investigation uh, is part of that. Um, I think that we need to look at how we react to China. The fact that you have the the uh, ch top Chinese official in Vancouver yeah. going around boasting about uh, manipulating the election, defeating a couple of conservative candidates, that's a problem. Um, they're admitting the fact that, that they interfered rather successfully uh, in in our elections. So, you know, whether that's... We have an ambassador you know, in Ottawa sending... that threatens Canadians and tells the universities not to let the media in. So, I mean, these people should have been kicked out years ago, So which, you know... You're absolutely right. That they haven't tells uh, you how serious it's being taken, seriously. Right, so imposing sanctions, yeah. um, sending them home, um, and what we really need to be doing immediately is, is enacting a Foreign Influence Registry Act mm -hmm. um, to start tracking where this influence comes from. Again, whether it's we're not talking about just China, but we're talking about Iran, Russia, and other authoritarian states who have uh, zero respect for our democracy and are, in fact, actively working to undermine the cohesion of our society. Yeah. Um, so these are the sorts of things we need to be doing. Uh, and this task force on election integrity really need to be, needs to be expanded into a full-time effort, includes civil society, in it and uh, and members from all political parties yeah. uh, in Canada, so that we're we're monitoring this stuff on a regular basis. Let's not forget that these um, these actors, you know, whether it's China, Russia, or Iran, they don't wait for elections to come around. They do this sort of activity full time. And election election time is sort of like their Super Bowl when they really become active. Yeah. Um, so we need to we need to figure out a full time defense against uh, foreign interference, not this sort of one off. Uh, these one-off uh, uh, organizations that pop up just when the elections come around. Too little, too late, my thinking, but we'll uh, stay tuned on this. He's speaking in Richmond Hill right now, so we'll see if he's asked again about it. Appreciate it, Marcus. Thank you. Anytime. Thanks for having me on, Alex. That is Marcus Colga joining us here. So, yeah, I'm just seeing him on the screen. We'll see if he's asked about it again. Alex Pearson. Weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. As we uh, march towards Friday, which marks, believe it or not, the one-year anniversary of the uh, start of the whole Russia-Ukraine war. And, you know, when we look back, there's just no way, first of all, we can conclude that um, Ukraine would survive as it has and put up such a show of force against a nuclear force that's uh, revealed itself to be maybe not... Um, up to the battle. Not, that's not to say certainly that Russia can't cause a lot more carnage. It can. Uh, it's already pummeled a lot of cities across Ukraine, killing thousands of people and injuring many more. Yet those people in Ukraine stay to fight and um, survive in really desperate situations. Uh, and it could get a lot worse, certainly. But in the last year, 150,000 Ukrainians have uh, come here because we have one of the, if not the largest Ukrainian um, community here in this country, but they're staying with friends and family. They're trying to carve out a new life as they say goodbye to their old life. Many of them probably thinking they'll return one day to the life, but for now, they have come here to get on their feet. 
Irene Vaxman is VP of Stakeholder Engagement over at JVS Toronto. This is a not-profit, uh, not-for-profit organization in the GTA that helps train and recruit and employ those looking, um, you know, to get jobs. And they're doing a, a lot of help with Ukrainians. Irene, thanks uh, for joining us. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be with you. What has it been like? I mean, what is the, um, I mean, I think a lot of Ukrainians, certainly they come here because they've got family and friends, but they also, I think, came here, a lot of them as a temporary measure. You know, they'll come here, work, and then go home. What's your, um, when you look back a year from where we were to where we are now, what are some of your uh, takeaways? Uh, Yeah, so this was definitely a very unexpected situation. And as the numbers are growing, Uh, we can see that it's not only those individuals who already have connections to Canada who were able to arrive. So the government program called Kuwait that uh, uh, allowed uh, Ukrainians fleeing the war uh, to arrive in Canada, we know that there are already over 500,000 applications that were were sent to um, uh, the ministry in order to arrive in Canada. So it's definitely huge numbers of people seeking safe haven in Canada and coming here on a temporary work permit. But what we are seeing is that um, people are coming here and and people are trying to see and engage for themselves while uh, they're looking for safety, also explore Canada and... Sorry, we're having a little bit of trouble on the phone lines today. I think it's... uh... Hopefully not indicative of the next 24 hours that we're going to have in radio. But, uh, yeah, we are having a bit of a, a trouble. We'll try to get um, Irene back on the line. Is she there? No. Okay. Let's try to get her, uh, Irene back on the line because apparently this is going to be uh, some of the snow headaches that we deal with. Certainly a lot of um, Ukrainians have come here, uh, not just to work sending home money, um, you know, to their families. Also, uh, interestingly, out in Mississauga, there's a big company that makes a lot of the tanks, well, the only tanks that we are now sending to Ukraine, and they're being built by Ukrainians who've just gone in uh, and they see it as a, a job of honor. Irene, I think we've got you back. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Can you hear me now? I can hear you until uh, our phone lines do what they've been doing today, which is cutting out whenever they feel like it. So uh, this is um, this is our, our headache of the day. None to, none, nonetheless, you were talking about some of the observations of what you're, you're seeing. Uh, and, and one of the things, you know, is are, are a lot of Ukrainians who came here thinking that they would just work until they can go home. Are, are they changing uh, how they're doing things and, and looking to stay longer? Yes, uh, we can definitely see this trend, uh, and it, it's not an easy situation. You know, unlike the other waves of refugees, and JVS Toronto has been doing this work for over 75 years, we're there we, wherever we're needed, any, uh, you know, crisis situation or any emerging need, we work with refugees from all over the world. Uh, but here, the situation is quite unique. So people are coming here on a temporary visa, and they're coming here on a work permit. And while they're, uh, you know, exploring uh, the, the situation in Canada, and unfortunately, with the war uh, continuing uh, as we're observing it and, and not nearing uh, the end anytime soon from what we're seeing right now, uh, people are looking around and people are looking for opportunities to establish themselves in Canada. And, uh, you know, with the programming and with the support that we're able to provide, they're now looking into um more in, integration type of jobs uh, as, as opposed to just getting some kind of a job to uh, do it for a few months and go back home. Now we're definitely seeing a trend of more professional jobs that people are seeking, more kind of, uh, 
you know, jobs that will help them establish themselves in the future. And, and we're trying to help through providing uh, additional training. And of course, language is, is uh, also a great need for, uh, for this group of people who are fleeing this terrible war. What were the jobs, generally speaking, that people would take? Because a lot of them came here with training, with certainly education, um, so they can do a lot. But what, if, you know, when you come in like a situation like this where it's very rushed, it's an emergency situation, and we have so many people coming in, what were the jobs that you would normally put these kinds of candidates in and what can they do? Yeah, so it, it, it's a great question. It's a very case-by-case basis. So our approach is always... Uh, wherever uh, the skills can be utilized to uh, their potential, we're trying to place people in professional jobs as much as possible. But as I mentioned, language is a big barrier for many people who were not simply were not preparing for this move. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we work with economic uh, for immigration, they take language classes in advance and they try, you know, to up sales or prepare anything. With this particular group, it was very sudden. People were just, you know, running away and were fearing for their lives and they've endured some terrible things. Uh, so we, we needed to support them also uh, emotionally in, in, in many cases. So the jobs would be uh, for those people who uh, were struggling with language, it would be, uh, you know, retail jobs and some kind of uh, what we call survival jobs because they needed uh, employment right away. Um, but as we're now um, approaching uh, almost one year from uh, when the first people were arriving and, and people are taking language classes and they're improving their language, and you're absolutely right, the, the vast majority are very highly educated. We're looking at other opportunities and we're looking at uh, some other skills trainings and upgrading and more office jobs and, and more professional jobs for these individuals. Yeah, I mean, your your program has been around for a really long time. Was it different, um, the kind of supports that you needed to bring in? Because you're not just bringing in people who have been completely displaced very, very quickly. Now they're watching their homes uh, and their lives uh, being destroyed. And if they've got a husband or family over there fighting, uh, they're worried about that every day. Are these services and supports always in place, or did you have to bring in particular uh, specialties as far as supports? So, yeah, so we, we, we're very good at adjusting and tailoring our services to uh, to the people that we're working with. And, and definitely uh, this particular group needed more emotional support uh, because, it, you're right, families were torn apart in many cases. Uh, the men are still back home or other parts of the families are, are, are still there. And there's a lot of fear for their safety. And in some cases, people are not even sure that their loved ones are still alive. So, yes, definitely emotional support. Uh, Luckily, we were well positioned because we already had quite a few staff who spoke the languages, who understood the culture. And and we have lots of partnerships. So we were able to bring in uh, other settlement agencies and mental health supports and other emotional support providers. Uh, to make sure that people are, uh, you know, are ready and and um, and 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 they're hugged and supported uh, by the community here, and and I want to give a big shout out to Canadians, to you know, to local people, to local employers uh, who opened their doors, who opened their companies, who opened their houses in many cases to accommodate people and to make them feel welcome, and this is very heartwarming to see about our society. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, Canadians are pretty generous. Uh, no question about it. These folks came here. Stability's got to be key um, just to get them 
on their feet established and, uh, you know, try to give them some stability while they go through this. But uh, it's fascinating how many you've helped and, and certainly there's more coming in. Yes, as the war continues, unfortunately, who knew that it will continue for so long? Yeah. And and among everybody else, we also thought that it's going to be a matter of technology. And unfortunately, the situation continues. Uh, so we're trying to help, uh, you know, uh, the best we can and organize events, right. uh, employers in the community and other resources so that people can feel welcome and they can uh, sustain themselves while they're here and build life here for those who are interested. Yeah, it makes the biggest, biggest of differences. No question about it. Glad to hear it's uh, been going so successfully. Irene, apologize for the uh, technical issues, but... Uh they are what they are. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Alex. That is Irene Vaxman, who is with uh, JVS, and they've had a very successful time, you know, helping a lot of uh, people get on their feet. Alex Pearson, weekdays at 9. We are 640 Toronto. Today actually marks Human Trafficking Awareness Day. And in 2023, we actually need more awareness for a sex crime that is uh, growing at alarming rates, especially here in Ontario, where we've got the highest sex trafficking stats. And a large part of that is because of our geography and the ease with which uh, young victims can easily be moved around along that 401 corridor between Windsor and Quebec, where you'll get girls as young as 12 to 19 who find themselves isolated and forced to have sex for money with people who can travel along that corridor, make a pit stop, and then disappear. So this is a major hub for this particular crime, despite the fact that this province spends more money and efforts to stop a crime that is often underreported. And, uh, a lot of truck drivers have actually been recruited as a major part of trying to stop this crime because they know these routes really well, they can spot the bad behavior, and they can help get the word out warning of this crime that is very, very easy to fall into and yet so, so hard to escape. Let me bring in uh, Nora Constas. She's the president and CEO of Boost Child and Youth Advocacy uh, Centre. Thanks so much, Nora, for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. In 2023, despite the fact that we have so much information about this, it sometimes surprises me that, that people are not more aware, especially with more and more technology and access that we are giving people to our private lives, and yet the numbers are still going up. Well, that in itself is the the biggest culprit in, um, in, in the increased rates that we have experienced lately. Um, more and more children at younger ages are accessing social media platforms, and they're doing so um, in many cases relatively unsupervised, mm-hmm. which creates a, a opportune time for um, people to, to prey on these innocent victims. Yeah, this is one of those crimes that can um, take part and take place in a number of different ways. Either you can be a a young woman, and it's not just women who this uh, affects, but, you know, in a vulnerable situation, maybe you don't have parental supports, maybe you're uh, lower income, maybe, um, you know, you live in hard times and then you can get kind of vulnerable and pulled into it. But it can happen to people who are on Tinder. Maybe they swipe uh, right for a date and then they find themselves in a hotel room, which is not a date. It's their new existence. And so it's not really a crime that has one 
um, modus operandi. Not at all, no. And in a lot of cases, um, much of the grooming and the luring that does take place before um, they are actually uh, sort of begin trafficking um, can happen quite um, saliently. And and people don't realize that, you know, um, offering up things like gifts and, and showing them opportunities and telling them how much they love them and that, you know, they're the most beautiful and incredible person they've ever met. All of that could actually feed into individuals who are vulnerable at the time and are looking to connect and, and they take advantage of that. So what what is it that's not happening? I mean, Ontario, um, you know, under the Ford government in particular, has been pretty proactive on this file, you know, not only involving the trucking industry, but raising attention to this 401 corridor area. But what else needs to happen then? And why is the message not getting through? Is this a, you know, a conversation not being had at home with parents? Is this not a conversation that is had in schools where, where kids are warned? I think we need to start having these conversations earlier um, and in different spheres. And that does include our education system and that does include the homes. Parents need to understand that anybody can be a victim um, and it doesn't matter what background you come from, what your socioeconomic status is, uh, where you attend school um, and really how old you are. It, everybody's at risk for it. So I think what we need to do is create opportunities to educate um, the caregivers both in the community and at home and give them the tools they need to help create safe environments to have these conversations. So where what is the lifespan? Like what is the general span once someone is then, I guess, um, for lack of a better uh, uh, you know, term, it, it, it's almost like an incarceration, but once they are in the in the grips of a of a pimp or someone who's using them for sex, what is that lifespan generally before they can escape? If they can escape, it, it, well, the, there is no end date to that. Sometimes, um, oftentimes, the the fear is so um, prevalent in these lives, in the lives of these victims, that they feel that they can never escape. So it's really creating a bit more of the awareness and focusing on prevention, because once they're in the hands of these uh, perpetrators, it's very difficult to try and get them out. And then once they're out, um, you know, it is a long, long, long life of uh, certainly a long period of time of rehabilitation, getting back on your feet. Yes. And, and that is where um, access to services becomes the most critical, right? And we need to help support these individuals, give them the tools they need to, to address the trauma that they've experienced over a long period of time um, and help support them as they move out of that lifestyle into one that is uh, safer and, and oftentimes give them what they need to help build up their self-esteem and and self-worth because that's all taken away from them. What are, uh, we know the pandemic kind of changed everything. We saw a huge surge in crime, like fraud, uh, cyber crimes and all the rest of it. But what are some of the new recruiting tactics that are being used in this particular industry? Well, um, I think in the the fact that the, the cyber world is relatively um, unpoliced and and it's a free-for-all there's there's really uh ample opportunity for anyone to engage in in such criminal activity and because 
children um, at younger ages are starting to access social media, um, it it becomes it creates a whole new level of risk. And because they don't have the knowledge and the education to understand or to pick up on potential red flags, um, they become victims very 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 quickly. And you know, these perpetrators can be quite covert and they can pretend to be a friend. They could pretend to be their age. They could pretend to be somebody else and end up luring them into a very dark place. Yeah, that's why, you know, we warn parents, you know, if your daughters or kids are on TikTok, it, it's just a playground for, you know, a bad behavior and um nefarious characters. Uh, look, I, I don't have a lot of hope, nor I'd be nice if the social media companies would do something proactively. I don't get the sense that they will. Maybe I'm wrong. But what more in your mind then could happen other than, you know, more conversations about it? I mean, we've got the campaign with the truckers. Are there things that are being added into these campaigns that, that will help? I, I think this is where um, social media companies public policy, education all come together and really develop processes that will help put in things that that protect these children and youth from actually getting into um, precarious situations like this. There's no magic bullet, unfortunately. There's no... um, you know, cookie cutter approach. It's going to be a collaborative effort that's got to sort of come out in a public policy that's going to protect our most vulnerable. Yeah, or not vulnerable, because I think a lot of this, Nora, comes down to a, a thinking of, well, it wouldn't happen to me, or a parent saying, not my kid. Right. And and I think it's the fact that it could happen to anyone. And I said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't matter what race, what gender, what socioeconomic status, what school, where in Ontario you are from. Um, the risk is there and real for everybody. Yeah, it, it's a very cruel world. Nonetheless, uh, in this day and age, you'd think we'd have a better grasp on it. And this is just one of those crimes that just doesn't seem to be uh, penetrating. But maybe we can certainly, uh, you know, get the info out there. I appreciate your time on this, Nora. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, this is one of those uh, areas of crime that you would think would start coming down. And the numbers just aren't right now. And uh, Ontario plays a big role, despite the fact that we actually are very proactive trying to get the word out, but it is absolutely uh, a terrible, terrible destructive crime.